Welcome to this special episode of Mensch, the podcast. I'm Jonathan Harding, the author of Mensch, Beyond the Cones, and in previous episodes, I've been reading a few of the most important chapters in the book. Mensch is a book about what sets German coaching apart and what really does make a good head coach. To explore that question further, I sat down with football writer, Stadio co-host and poet Musa Okwonga to talk about the book and its broader themes. Here's our conversation. I think, you know, I read I read a lot of books around management and I wondered, you know, on the one hand, why are we not having a conversation about coaching in Germany? It's such a big country for football and the way that it's had such a big impact culturally here. A lot of people look at it as sort of having some sort of blueprint, you know, and I wondered why we're not talking about the coaching methods, you know, because it's all well and good talking about the football and the players, but there must be, you know, a reason that that's working so well. And, yeah, I've said it many times before, but Living on the Volcano by Michael Calvin was a big turning point where I thought, okay, this is interesting because it was speaking to sort of figures across the coaching pyramid in the UK. And I thought, we, yeah, we need something like that in Germany. So that was one level of inspiration. But on the other hand, I also thought, I want to understand more about human development in football. I want to understand what it means to be a good coach and whether it's really just about badges and tactical understanding or whether there's more to it. So, you know, it was a bit of a curiosity and uh, and a desire to tell stories from people who I think are really pivotal in coaching, but may not always have the chance to tell their story. Well, we're talking about, so what prompted this? And I want to jump across slightly to another direction and talk about the reading, the preparation for the book, because there's a lot of football stuff in here, but you make references to things far beyond football. Like you reference Rilke, you reference Goethe. So I guess I want to ask as well, like how much reading and in what areas did you do beyond football for this book in preparation? Well, I think I wanted to incorporate German culture around this book because I think you know, it's quite a broad conversation to be had, but there's probably an argument to be made, and this is maybe a bit too bold, but I think Germany has not been very innovative in recent years. Um, in, I know that's maybe a big shout, but I think a lot of art and literature has has been out there and uh, has been of high quality and I would suggest that it's probably just not getting the attention that it deserves but really globally impactful work hasn't happened I don't think in a long time um, so I wanted to remind people that there was actually a quite a large body of work in Germany that has cultural significance on the way that German people think and and I think that impacts football as well and that's why I wanted to read around you know it was quite a lot of reading but I wanted yeah. to to do that thing that I think more people should do in sport and that's think outside of their own area of expertise right right you know, we, we can't really be innovative if we continue to think within the concept of coaching paradigms or or tactical setups you know we need to start thinking about how aspects of other areas of life can impact our way to to teach and educate and inform so what? Yeah, well, I don't know. I want to jump in there because you talk about innovation, but um, I wonder how much that perceived lack of innovation is due to a complacency. The reason I mention this is because I think of, um, there's a quote that begins one of your chapters, uh, Helmut Gross. The problem in Germany was that we were world champions in 1990. And I guess I want to talk about how harmful success possibly can be to a football team and to society. Oh, definitely. I think Germany has suffered from that enormously. I mean, I talked, I talked about that after the 2018 World Cup win. You know, I, I thought that was the worst thing they could have done. Um, and that was all a result of winning in Brazil four years earlier. 
You know, I think there's a big problem with achieving success if you don't plan for what happens after it. And I yeah. understand that a lot of effort goes into that, but you also have to plan for the events after that. Otherwise, yeah. there's a suggestion there that your that your creation is is solely driven towards the success and what happens after that doesn't matter. Right. Um, I think complacency is the perfect word. I think far too much uh, of, of Germany's approach was geared towards winning in 2014 and everything was done towards that. You know, the academy change and arrival at the beginning of the millennium and all of, all of the events that happened in the 14 years between those two events was geared towards winning. Once they won... There was a, a lack of recognition that to stay at the top, you need to change. You need to be adaptable. You need to recognize when the journey, as much as I don't like that phrase, has come to an end. And it was mm. very clear that that group of players, that, that, that team feeling was over. And it was time to transition, you know? And that was obvious from the outside. Right. So I think Germany has suffered from complacency. And, you know, they paid the price in Russia. And I think... Yeah, there's there's definitely an argument to be made that the innovation has has suffered from the same. I, but again, you know, I do stress that I think that there is good work happening in right. that area, whether it is arts or sport. It's just that they're not always getting the recognition that they deserve. But Germany should be looking to be one of those countries. You know, it has such an right. important stance in Europe. You know, let's be innovative again. And I think, as I say, there are people doing that. But well, I want to jump time. in on the innovation side. I want to jump in on a point there because you've got this performance center being completed um yeah well maybe 2021 but possibly a bit later now with the coronavirus who knows but yeah. hopefully hopefully not too far behind schedule talk about good work and trying to get past complacency what role is that performance center going to play do you think in germany's in germany football's future i fear that it will play a negative role um i i wonder whether we're moving towards too much of a dystopian blade runner like future where everything is so shiny and uh, perfect that it is not a true reflection of human development right and my major concern is having spent time at the academy that currently exists the one in hennef um i think that the having an area a space that is built on fundamental understanding and is not full of accessories or um, superfluous equipment mm. uh, is is the perfect way to focus on what matters and that's the work you know Oliver Bierhoff called this new academy um, or hoped for it to be the Silicon Valley you know of, of football development and I think there are lots of problems not only with that statement but with the actual Silicon Valley and and the way that that has developed itself so I would be cautious. I think obviously, you know, it's great to see Germany moving forward and using the technology that's available in the modern era. I just hope that we don't lose sight of the work. My, one of my biggest issues at the moment is that the marketing of your ability, whether that be as an individual or as an organization, is often more important than the actual level of ability. And that right. is problematic. So it's easy for the for the DFB in Germany to say, look at this glitzy building and it's all fantastic and modern technology. But let's not lose sight of the actual work that goes on inside that building. And that's where I think it's easier to keep focus um, in the old academy because it was just bare bones. A perfect example of that to apply to football more, more uh, concretely. When Jurgen Klopp was made Borussia Dortmund manager, he made sure that the changing rooms were the same changing rooms for a Sunday league team. And they wow. still are. Wow, you know, you, okay. ke you keep them stripped back. If you've ever been in Bristol Dortmund's changing rooms, you know, they are literally one place to hang your shirts. There's a spot in the middle to drop your kit afterwards, boots on the bottom, four hair dryers in the showers. That's it. There's nothing else. 
You know, and if you put that in contrast with, say, uh, AC Milan in the San Siro, where they've even got, you know, TV screens or personalized lockers, you know, there are many weird different ways to do that. And, uh, you know, maybe it's different and it applies for different contexts. But there is some great value, I think, in keeping things focused on the actual heart of what they are rather than expanding or extending them unnecessarily. Well, it's funny because just to draw in a point, there's um, a point in your book where Mehmet Scholl refers to the modern breed of coaches, laptop coaches. And within the context of the book, that's criticized, but it feels like he may almost be stumbling across a particular, a truth or a warning. Is there an extent that may be true? Or I think there is some truth in what Mehmet Scholl says, but I think as often is the case with him of late, he doesn't always just use the best words, shall we just say. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. I also think that there's maybe an element of Scholl being frustrated himself, uh, at, you know, not having many coaching opportunities. I mean, he was in Bayern's academy for a bit, but he's been out of that for a long time now. And for a, such a, an impactful player of his time, it's, it's odd that he wasn't able to go on and do more with his coaching career and his knowledge. I think um, the reason that there's maybe some truth in that is that I think the arrival of young managers has potentially created a situation where it's easy to suggest that young managers are the answer because they have been developed in this system and they know things that older managers don't and I think what we really need to have a conversation about is the appropriate manager for the appropriate position yes it says in your book actually there's no such thing as good and bad managers just appropriate not appropriate exactly Um, now there's a funny thing I want to pick up as well because this talk about young managers another point in your book um, there's some detail where they talk about this wave but one of the older managers says, look, this is cyclical. You know, um, where there have been young managers before and now that managers like Hannes Wolf and um, Tedesco have actually moved on now. Um, so I think one of them's in Belgium, one of them's in Russia now. Like, yeah. are we entering a cycle where older managers are kind of back on vogue again or is this just a simply part of the ebb and flow of, of football? It could just be one of the two. Um I think we had definitely had a, a generation that came from Klopp and then Tuchel that was giving clubs permission to recognize that internal appointments or youthful appointments were a possibility. Um, I think that is aided by the fact that the Bundesliga's standing in European football is not England's and so therefore hasn't got this con- constant level of competition about having to prove themselves to be the best league in the world. You know, they've built their foundation in a modern era of development and that extends to the dugout. So I I think it's cyclical. I'm not sure that older managers, again, I'm not sure that older managers who don't adapt will have very many opportunities. I don't necessarily think it's an old versus young conversation. Right. I think it's a, it's appropriate. It's the right manager for the right job at the right time. That comes down to a lot of factors, you know, whether the coach has adapted to how to coach modern players because I think any coach in the game would say it's different now than it was five, ten years ago. Uh, That comes down to the club, whether the club has a clear philosophy of what kind of manager they want, what kind of values they want to transmit to their community. Um, And I think that makes a big difference. And it comes down to players as well, whether they're open to having the type of manager who maybe wasn't the same as a previous manager, who maybe will make a change in a positive direction, whether they're open to that change. So a lot of factors in play um, but again, I think we need to move away from the idea that it's a question of age. Because the extension of saying that young managers are the answer is that what you do down the pyramid is to encourage under 12 managers to think in five years, I'll be a head coach. 
Right. And then what we're, what we're really doing is removing the valuable level of coaching done at youth level because then it's not about the work with the kids. It's about the ego of the head coach at that point who's just desperate to become a head coach. And that's, that's problematic. Actually, talking of the youth, the youth segment, I want to get into this. Um, you shared a comment on social media, um, which is very interesting. I quote you directly, by the summer of 2022, Bayern will no longer have under nine, under 10 teams as the club recognizes the value of giving such young kids the chance to play many different sports. Entry will then be under 11, as you say, still a bit young, I think, but a huge step forward. Why did you think that was a huge step forward? I say this as someone who's obviously not a coach, but having spoken to a lot of people who know a lot more than I do, um, who work in this area of, of youth football, um, I think there are a number of advantages to delaying the professionalization of youth football to, I would suggest, from what I know and what I've learned, to something like 14. So if we think about the way that youth football is sold, it's extremely problematic um, because it latches on to... Uh, the feelings and emotions of parents who just want the best for their children, but that may not reflect the reality of the situation. If you're seven years old, in my very humble opinion, there can really not be such a thing as an elite level football player at seven. Um, and there cannot be an elite level academy team at seven. Um, and I think that's something that could extend all the way up till 14. Now, obviously, I say this again as not a coach, but based on what I understand and the research I've done and the people I've spoken to, why it's interesting that Bayern are making that decision. They gave their reasons because, as you said, you know, they want to give kids the chance to play other sports. Specialization is extremely problematic because most of these kids, if we say 12, 13, are not going to be pro footballers anyway, right? Because that's just the nature of the numbers. So really the focus needs to be on giving kids the opportunity to have fun and enjoy the experience. And if we're already saying at 10 or 11, you know, you need to turn up now, you need to wear this kit trainings three times a week. That's very problematic. You're already creating a level of professionalization that removes the fun from the game for the child, I think. So by making that decision is a positive one, albeit probably with the motivation, they will say that kids should play other sports, but they just want the benefits of that because the benefit of kids playing multiple sports is that they're probably more likely to develop physical literacy in a way that enables them to move and uh, to travel around a football pitch in a way that a kid who's just played football their whole life, you know, won't benefit. I think it's Roger Federer who played something like five or six different sports when he was growing up. There are right. endless examples of, of why that's beneficial. So I think it's a good thing. And I think the knock-on effect of that is that if you really want that to be important, then you make human development the focus of your academy or your football club. And then it becomes obvious that you don't take kids at 10 or 11 um, into professionalization you work with them in their communities they still play football they may come down and train with you sometimes but it's a very relaxed situation you give the kids the chance to make the decisions so they can decide how often they want to train you know there are teams in Sweden that have made that decision um, it's there's a way to do it that increases your connection to the community that puts more decision making on the kid but without putting too much pressure on them and that you know that there's only things to be gained from that I think this is interesting so I want to pick up that element of you know, almost what's in it for buying because it feels like human development um, is beneficial both for the enjoyment of the child, but actually in a footballing, in a very cynical footballing sense, you know, for the club as a whole, like you get a better quality of player at the result of it. And I want to pick up on one aspect of your book. There's one, your book has a very interesting tone because actually throughout the book, 
it's very measured. It's quite dispassionate. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a real care in the book. But there's one particular moment where you become actually quite animated, and it's when you're talking about the work of Dr. Matthias Lockman. Mm. And you describe yourself as being blown away by his presentation, which relates to this same subject of a specialization. Just unpack a bit for a moment the work of Dr. Lockman and why in this context you found his work so so exciting. Because it's actually at the heart of human development for children. Um, he works with this, with, with this concept um, where kids have the opportunity to play football free of competitiveness to a negative degree, Right. Um, and the original idea comes from Horst Wein, who was a legendary educator uh, back in the day. But what he's done is, is create the, a format of football that's extremely variable. Um, but the, the essence of it is a, is a three-on-three situation where you promote the number of touches that a child can have. You know, and, and basically, you can only score in a, in a certain area at each end of the, um, of the pitch. It's, it's called Faninho, but... I think there are lots of variations on the name. But the idea being that you generate more touches of the ball for kids. Um, it becomes less about tables and points in a competitive league. You get the opportunity to go and play tournaments against other teams on a day. So one Saturday, maybe you go together with your team and you just play. There's less of a, oh, in the league standings, we're sixth, which I think is extremely problematic at youth level because whether we like it or not, people are still being judged even at under 12, 13 level on their league standing, which in my eyes is extremely problematic. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about it because I think the work that he's doing really, really makes a difference. It gives the, the ball back to the kids, as it were. You know, they, they get the chance to have more touches and do what we all want to do. What was the one thing we all wanted to do when we were young? We all wanted to score. We all wanted to score a goal. There's nothing yeah. like that feeling. And so these, you know, you, the goals in the game are much smaller, but you are forced to work with teammates. You're forced to understand space. And this is all happening subconsciously. You know, on the surface, all you're doing is having loads of touches of the ball and scoring goals. Yeah. That's a dream scenario. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's, it's a dream scenario. So why, you know, and, and fortunately for, for Matthias, and I'm, I'm happy to see this happen, but his work was, you know, started to be adapted and used by the DFB and they've started to take some of his ideas and move forward because they've recognized that there is a great level or, or opportunity really for, for, for development here in, in young kids who want to play the game by giving them more freedom. That's great. And um, I'm intrigued by the fact that the things which are good for players, it's an, the thing that comes across in your book is that a lot of the things that are that good coaches or techniques that top coaches are adopting are also just good for these players as human beings. So example Definitely. like being Christian Streich, the Freiburg coach, talking about non-football issues with his players, politics, current affairs. These are things which feel to a certain extent beneficial. What's your view on on the value of a coach speaking on these subjects, especially at this point in history? I think it depends on the group. Christian Streich has benefited greatly from being there for a long time. He knows his surroundings and, you know, he, he understands the city that he operates in. But I would encourage the coaches to look at that and, ha and see how they could apply it to their own context. Because I think we just can't escape the fact that if we develop human beings, it will be a lot easier to develop players. Right, right. And we cannot see these two things as separate entities. You know, Oh, he, he's really quick. He crosses the ball really well and he's got great vision in the final third. Okay, what's he like as a human being? What's his personality like? How's, how's his emotional thinking? Does he have a 
Does he have a critical mind? You know, what does he feel about his own character? Does has he has he connected? How does he has he got a good support group? What's his situation at home? What other hobbies does he have? You know, it's not an easy situation to approach. But I think in a in a professional football environment or a professional sports environment, I would hope that there are already people in place that you can lean on their knowledge to help you understand human beings more. And I think part of that is also encouraging conversations about social issues, uh, conversations about present issues and, and things that are happening. Because I think football does a very good job of removing people from reality. Right. And we have to bring people back and remind them that although they operate in a world with far more financial opportunity in most cases, they are still human beings and there is a great value in, in remembering to keep your feet on the ground. Actually, I want to jump in there as well again. Um, we're talking about player development and it strikes me that one of the, one of the chapters there is a reference to the god of money who's come into football and sort of taken control um, of this sport. And I'm looking at this and just wondering, like in a society, well, in a sport where there's so much financial inequality and where it's so much harder for the majority of clubs to now afford the premium talent, it puts a real emphasis on player development, right? And, you know, Ralph Rangnick mentions that, you know, a player who has got a certain amount of talent, but with a with acquired talent plus a mentality is far superior to a player who's actually very gifted, but doesn't have the right mentality. Like, and that, you see that quite quickly. How much of a role is this playing, this emphasis that you're talking about on human development, not just player development, how much of the role is this playing at clubs below the sort of very highest financial tier who need to make up that financial gap by developing raw talent? How much of a role is this playing and do you see it potentially playing? I don't think it plays enough of a role. Right. At all. Um, I think some clubs have, have had to be innovative to, to stay ahead. And some clubs have been brave enough to recognize that the only way to compete, given the financial discrepancies, is to be bold and do something completely different. Right. And I would hope that more clubs recognize the value in that. Um, yeah. Not just because it gives you an advantage on the field, but because what are football clubs? In the modern day, it's very easy to lose sight of what they really should be. Yes, they're massive businesses. And, you know, the the financial aspect is now creating more and more issues but they are also a source of sport for the community for which they serve and what are the values that we wish to reflect I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves as a football club it's very easy not to have those conversations and just say well we're making xyz in terms of profit and I'm more concerned about that this is a business yes it is a business and I'm not saying ignore that side of things but I am also saying it's all well and good to say that this club stands for these values, but how are you acting those values out? And are they really a reflection of your community? Because I want, I want, sorry, so I'm, I'm just being like, this is a bit rude of me because I'm thinking <laughs> now that the, the thought, the thought is, in, is percolating in my head. You're talking about values a lot, but values don't occur in a vacuum, right? And the, the moment, not. the current political social moment we're in, to what extent is this moment a good one to talk about the values of a club as they relate to society. Why, why, if if at all, is is this moment important? I mean, now is the time for us to 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 be supportive, even when we're f you know furthest away and we lack that greatest of human energies, which is you know time together and and a chance to to show our friendship and to 
to to come together you know we don't have that opportunity at the moment so let's let's have a chance let's seize this opportunity as you say um to really recognize the moments in our lives when we do spend time together and more often than not that is at sporting events because we care about the football team because that's where we're from and they represent the community and and, and they want that's what that's important to us you know why do we go to the stadium on on a saturday at 3:30 in the afternoon you know like well that's because we care you know and if we can't use this time to figure out that on the one hand you know the people who support those football teams are important but those people who support them also look at your football team and ask yourself is this a team reflecting the values that i consider important you know is that a team i want to support you know look at what my team is now doing in this crisis to support its community are they acting are they helping you know and then look at individuals are there players out there who you know what do i see and if they're not don't just think oh you're rubbish you should be helping more no 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 you know maybe think oh how can i help them or is my club you know doing enough to help those players feel strong enough to go out and help those individuals you know, this isn't an exercise in in going after people this is an exercise in recognizing what we're doing for one another and right. i think it's a perfect opportunity for us to recognize that if we don't it's 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 not about just doing this in a crisis. This is how we should operate on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. We should care for one another all the time. We should look out for our community all the time. And I know that in most cases that we do, but having more means we can do more. And it, it, we don't just stop there. And I think you know, that extends to how we play football on the pitch, how we look after our kids in our academies, how we treat our parents who have children in our academies and or, or are even in our first team, how we treat our first team players, how we reflect the values of our club. Whether we have a women's team or not, you know, I would suggest that most teams will say, oh, we don't have one. Oh, well, because it's a, it's a financial loss for us. Well, what's the message that you're sending to the community then? We only care about the boys in this community. We don't care about the girls. That's wrong. Take the financial hit. Have a women's team because the value of that message is we care just as much about the young girls in this community who want to be footballers as we do about the young boys. That is a much bigger message. And I just don't believe that there's not enough football, uh, money in football to make that decision. Because eventually it's going to pay dividends because women's football is on the rise. It continues right. to be more and more popular. And that's just one example. But I think it, it proves the point that if we can't come together now and make this the norm of looking out for one another, and that goes on a, on a, a community level to an individual level, then we, we have to ask ourselves a, the much bigger questions about how we want our football teams to be and how, as clubs, we need to act. I'm interested. You talk about values... Um of the German game and one value that seems to come across I don't know if I'm projecting here because I've seen this in my few my few years in this country it just seems maybe anecdotally that young footballers get more of a chance in Germany than they do in major other leagues what what is beneath what what's is that a cultural thing is that a conscious approach by the DFB why why do young players here get maybe a fairer shake than they do in other countries I think it's definitely linked to the decision in 2000 to enforce academies and, and make them compulsory. Uh, you saw, you know, that's why that team in 2014, Lahm, Schweinsteiger, Götze, that whole generation of players um, that came through, you know, that's, that's a result of making drastic changes um, and recognizing that there's something broken with your game. And if I think about England and I think about the opportunity or opportunities that it has right now, you know, there are an absolute host of young players with so much talent if I think you know the the transfer ban for Chelsea was the greatest thing that could have happened to Frank Lampard's coaching career because it forced him yeah I don't think he makes that decision if he doesn't have that 
And I think it's important to remember that sometimes the most important things in our history are sometimes out of our control. And it's how we react to them. You know, Germany made that decision, so they were in control. But, you know, now, ironically, we're in a situation where 20 years later, Germany's got to make sure that they continue to develop young players because actually, if you haven't adapted, and as we were saying, you know, if if we're talking about potential problems with the coaching uh, situation moving forward with this glitzy new building in Frankfurt, that's going to impact the young players. How are we going to look going forward? And if the Bundesliga continues to strive to be like the Premier League without being the Premier League, then we're going to run into a situation inevitably where you're going to stop doing what made you innovative in the first place, which is looking towards developing your own players, being, you know, being conscious of your community. And you're going to start to try and buy players for 50 million. You're going to start to try and do something to make yourself the best league in the world. That has its own pitfalls. And I'm not saying that you can just keep doing the same thing forever because obviously that would be, you know, a failure to adapt and to change. But Germany's players or young players get more opportunities here, I think, in most cases because clubs know they don't have very much choice. You know, they right. can't compete in the in the transfer market. You know, if English teams, you know, in the lower half of the Premier League or even the Championship are outspending mid-table, lower league Bundesliga teams, what are you going to do? You know, uh, I, I've spoken to guys in, in, in the Bundesliga in, in positions, sporting directors who've said, you know, well, we can't compete with that. You know, what are you going to do? But I think it's a combination of recognition of that and then saying, okay, it's one thing to say we can't do anything about it, but let's, how are we going to solve that solution? Well, we have a great academy. Okay, let's just improve our academy system. Okay, let's keep an eye out for young players and then give them the opportunity because what they've recognized is that giving a player either that you've developed or that you've bought for not very much money the chance to play in the first team, if they succeed, because if your scouting uh, department has done the right job, then they will because you've recruited on the basis of the right values that fit your team, then you're probably going to turn a financial profit on the player. So economically, that's a viable approach to have. Um, I'm more interested in the fact that it, it ties roots to a community because it means that you're invested in young people who are potentially from that area. Yeah. And also more importantly than seeing people as commodities and uh, as investments which i think is also problematic obviously if you develop them for a long time then you're probably going to have had a large impact on their understanding and their character so then you know you've formed an emotional connection with that person and then you would hope that there may be more years of potential service in terms of playing for the team because of the emotional connection that you've you've developed with the player i want to talk about emotional connection actually um there's a quote that you use. I want to just read it out in full and ask you about it. So you say at one point, this is in relation to the emotional connection between player and coach. The age of the point and do coach is over. Generation Y is here, both on the field and in the dugout. Why are we now in Generation Y? Um, generation Y, yeah. I think we're at an age where, or at a time where players need to know more than just the basic information. There needs to be a greater understanding. You know, there's this age old, you know, there are loads of variable ways to express it. But if you teach, you know, teach a man to fish, you know, it's that whole idea. There's there's a much greater value in teaching someone not just the task, but the reason and the purpose behind that task. And I think one of the reasons that 
Germany has done so well in that regard is because for quite a few years now, we've had players in Germany who don't just want to be told what to do. They also have a greater desire of understanding the reasons behind that choice. And if they don't necessarily agree with it, then there's an opportunity for a dialogue there with coaches. And so we've moved away from this authoritarian, do this, I say so, because in the hierarchy of things, I'm the coach and you're the player. And I think smart coaches, coaches who can adapt, obviously recognize their position, but also can sense in certain players an intelligence of the game or their surroundings um, or their culture that allows not only them as coaches to learn more, but potentially the teammates around the individual. So basic example, and it's the one I use in the book, but I think it's very good at pointing out the issue. If I said to you, okay, we're going to do corners. Um, I want you to run to the near post. You know, some players might say, okay. But I think a lot of players now are saying, why? Why do, you, why, why do you want me to run to the front post? So, well, if I explain to them in a way, you know, you can go into the methods of coaching here and maybe you don't just deliver the information, but you ask questions so that they deliver the response. But for the sake of ease, I'll say, I'll just say it. If you go to the front post, you drag a man out of the middle, leave a gap, and our defender can run in and head the ball and he's more likely to score. Well, as a player, I'm obviously going to understand the reasons for doing that now and I'm going to do it. Whereas if before you just said, just do it, you know, then you're just running aimlessly. And I think at some point, this is connected and maybe this is a bit too broad or too deep, but everything we do has to have a purpose. We have to understand why we're here, what we're doing in life. And I think you can take that down to your actions on a football pitch. I think if players understand what they're doing rather than just doing it, they're more likely to not only be successful, but to have a greater sense of purpose about what they're doing. But I want to, this is interesting to me because there's a sense that the player, the modern player is, I'm not sure more inquisitive or more empowered, but you know, we had, we had Cruyff back in the day. So of course what, we had, we had inquisitive players then. So what has prompted this? What has, is it that players are more sensitive, quote unquote, or is it about the power dynamics within football that have shifted, that have allowed empowered players to be more inquisitive? What, what's that about? I think power has definitely shifted. Players have a lot more power now. You know, if they don't play, they can say to their agent, I'm not playing. They can, they can basically give their coach an ultimatum and force a move. And I think one thing we've got to remember is that any player is available at any time. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a situation where players are beyond moving or beyond uh, questioning. Right. So I think, why now? I think, you know, people like Cruyff, they were the outliers of those generations. Those, those were the geniuses. You know, they, they were the people who stood out. I think now the overall level of intelligence, and I say football intelligence, is much higher than it used to be because of the nature of exposure, because of the nature of in- improvement of coaching um, and access to a greater level of, of understanding of the game um, not necessarily from a younger age, because we talked about that earlier. It's not necessarily about youth, but the chance when you are 16, 17, 18, 19, when you start to move into the opportunity of potentially playing professional sport, the opportunity to analyze your game through more data, more video, more support staff, more people who help with your medical needs, your physical needs, your mental needs, your technical ability, you know, there's only going to inevitably be an increased level of quality that comes out of that and i think if you feed people more information around what they're doing they're more likely to have a greater understanding and interest in it you know that's that's ultimately the situation and that's not to say um that 
you know, one country is doing better than another. Um, I think, it, again, it all applies to the context of a situation and, and the coaching in question. I think England has done a great job with their youth coaching. But the reason that we haven't seen it on in the Premier League is for you know other reasons. The Premier League doesn't consider itself a league of development. That's also why I think a lot of English players have recognised the chance to go to Germany or other leagues is, is there for them because they will get the game time. So that, yeah. That's interesting. So I, I want to jump in again. I do that quite a lot. But um, on the on the subject of footballing intelligence while I'm still here, um, one individual in particular who really stood out in your book um, was actually Pep Guardiola. And there was a great quote about him uh, where somebody said, I think it was uh, Daniel Nikoski mm. said, that before he arrived in Germany, no team changed formation three times in a game. I'd like you to talk about Pep Guardiola's impact on German football in Monja, because I feel like that that's big and that doesn't really get talked about maybe quite enough. What, what did he do? I think it was a missed opportunity for people to assess what he has done. I think, you know, with certain coaches, we can perhaps uh, over-exaggerate their impact sometimes, right? And I think it's tempting to say, well, you know, just because he did this, he's a genius. Um, but what Guardiola did to Germany was give it permission to do things that it wasn't, it didn't think it could do before. And I think that's really where the, the key to his his strength lies. You know, he he came in, Okay, you can give him criticism for not speaking German fluently, but he recognized the importance to speak German. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for taking lessons and, and re- recognizing that language is one of the most important parts of moving around and coaching and accessing players' minds and hearts and souls. On the pitch, in terms of his ability to, to change tactics, I think it gave Germany a little bit more fluidity. It gave them permission to be more fluid and to say, okay, our right back's the best player. Maybe we'll put him in midfield. Okay. You know, people never thought that was possible before. You can have a conversation about whether that's right or wrong, and that's up to you as an individual and how you see the situation. But I think for coaches to see someone come into their space with a different mindset, and I think this is another thing, you know, Germany, um, it it's great at giving a lot of coaches the opportunity to develop, but maybe a lack of exposure to foreign ideas is is not is limiting the opportunity for innovation. And so Guardiola's arrival, not only because he's one of the best coaches in the world, but also because the way that he played football, brought up in Barcelona, that concept of how to play Spanish football the way that he wanted to, playing in those great teams and then coaching those great teams, that's only going to bring a completely different mindset to a coach from, I don't know, Werder Bremen, who's never seen anything like that before, only on the television. So... I think it gave them license to take more liberties, to take more risks. And I think that's encouraging because I think German society can be very risk averse at times. Um, it's a, it's very, you know, built off stability. And that's not a criticism. I just think it's an observation. So in football, to have someone right, come absolutely. in and say, guys, you know, if, if 3 4 3 didn't work, just move it around, play 4 4 2 in the second half. That is a, is a game changer. Right. Because what that does is, it takes you away from thinking as a coach. Because in the past, if you change your formation at half time, the first thing people said was, we got it wrong. Was it? No. Okay. Well, maybe I'm, I did, but now I'm correcting it by adapting. You know, what's the alternative? Just sticking with the same thing because it wasn't working. You know, a smart coach, as we've said a number of times, is always the one that adapts and changes and recognizes. So having seen Guardiola do that and make radical changes and play football that was, you know, sometimes absolutely spellbinding to watch as a result, it gives people permission to do things that they didn't do before. And I think 
Germany's still benefiting from that. It's, I want to talk about really that's, that's great to hear. I mean, I want to talk about one other aspect of um, tactical innovation because your book talks so much about the overarching um, sort of almost almost like a spiritual side, which we'll get to in a moment. And that's not a criticism. I, I really like that it engages with the kind of the personality so much. But what's interesting with this book is I think people are going to read it a couple of years from now, a few years from now, and be like, these are tactical trends that we didn't really clock at the beginning. And one thing you talk about is packing. Could you quickly like unpack the concept of, of packing in football, if you don't mind? Oh, it's been a long time since I talked about packing. Yeah, um, I think often in football, statistics are not helpful. And I think we are potentially past the peak of the analytical age. But, and I'm hoping that we're moving towards the human development age. But I think we have to be careful that I think for too many years, football and all of those who observed it probably were kneeling at the altar of statistics fairly blindly. Right. Oh, what does 60% possession really mean? You know, they had 10 shots on target. Okay. You know, these are statistics that are sometimes useful, but they're not always great indicators of the game, who was better, um, and whether your coaching, from an internal perspective, whether your coaching was working or not. And, you know, I was fortunate to speak to Stefan Reinhardt, who's a former Bundesliga player, uh, who basically had this situation where he was at a conference and somebody said something, oh, you know, don't statistics. Uh, and he came up with this idea, we're like, well, like, okay, statistics can be helpful. So he, he designed this concept of packing where it's, it's about the number of players removed by a pass, which I think is, you know, could potentially be a podcast in itself. But My goodness, yeah. <laughs> if, if that is a, is a way to analyze what's more effective, you know, people like to talk about pass completion rates. That doesn't take into consideration where those passes occurred, whether they were in danger zones. You know, to be honest with you, you know, Matt Summers has probably got a great pass completion rate because most of his passes just go to his fellow centre-back, right? So we have to look at the statistics that can help us. And I'm sure for people who are working in football, who work in data and analysis, this is obvious because, you know, you work in that stuff all the time. But I think from the outside, sometimes it's, it's interesting to realise that sometimes we have to recognise what statistics work and what, what do, which ones don't. And... Packing is this concept where every pass that removes players, you basically pack them and take them off the field. That's why it's called packing. So you can analyze how many players are removed per game, right? Um, and I, I can't remember the numbers for the Germany-Brazil game, but it's something outrageous, the number of players that passes that both sides um, made in that game removing players left, right, and center. It was such a wild game. And Stefan told me when I interviewed him, you know, he said, if I was looking at these numbers, I would have said the game would have finished 5-3. Because wow, okay. that's how many players were removed. And that also tells you how many players Brazil removed in that game, which, you know, maybe tells a different story than the headlines are in the morning afterwards. But if we look at packing um, in a way that's, that's helpful for us, because that's what really these statistics are about, you know. And it, the Germany-Brazil game is a great example. I always think that there's greater value in looking at players who can play that pass because it's maybe more risky, but the vertical pass opens up passages of play that are otherwise lost or hidden. And these these ones are open maybe temporarily for a matter of nanoseconds and then they disappear. And that's why Meza Ozil, in my opinion, is so often misunderstood because he constantly creates these pathways in which these vertical passes could then potentially be played. 
Because you don't just need the person who's making the pass, you also need the person who's receiving the pass. So there are two elements to packing that are really important. And you know, those are the kind of statistics that are valuable to us because they give us a more accurate portrayal of the events of a game rather than just Team X had 70% possession. Excellent. I mean, it's great to have that tactical take from you, but I want to drag us back at the close of this conversation to what I feel is the kind of the soul of the book. And reading the book, I'm interested. I remember thinking... This book is quite a Trojan horse because it talks <laughs> so much about football, but it's actually emotionally located somewhere else. I mean, the way that you end each chapter with a kind of vignette of, of advice, it's almost like a, um, it's like almost like a sort of a, like football is like a kind of um, a series of parables. Like each chapter is a kind of parable, like, like a fable. And there's a kind of like Aesop's fable with a kind of a meaning at the end or a, a takeaway and it's almost how much is this book a kind of instructional guide to life like a handbook a manual a book that like let's say a player could have you know like when 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 a Felipe Scolari would hang out would hand out uh, the art of war to the players at what point <laughs> could this book become a handbook that accompanies human development for footballers wow I mean that's that's humbling to be considered in that regard. Um, I'd like to think that there are lessons in there that extend beyond the pitch, mainly because I think it's always smart to lean on the knowledge of people who know more than you if you're trying to make a point. And I recognize that I'm not a football coach and there are a lot of good coaches out there and they deserve to have their stories heard, but they also know a lot more than I do about certain things. So I'm going to let them do that talking because... I don't know. But I, I do feel like in the process of writing this book and the research that I've done since that my understanding of human beings continues to improve. And I would you know, say that a lot of people probably feel the same way. But I think in football and often in sport generally, we lose sight of that. Um, so I wanted to write a book that was about football because it's something that I love. But I wanted to write it using a compass that was pointing towards different areas of life because that's what I know and I think we can only really ever talk about our experience um I think it was Carl Rogers the philosopher who said well he's a philosopher in my eyes I mean he's also a psychologist but your personal experience is actually one of the most universal things in the world and my personal experience is really the thing that I know the greatest in the same way that your experience is what you know the best. So I'm going to tell that story, leaning on the knowledge of others when I need to, in the hope that that experience resonates with other parts of the universe. Mensch, Beyond the Cones, is available from ockleybooks.co.uk and from Amazon. <laughs>